Was that me? Cody? Okay. Good evening, everybody. Uh, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you so, so much, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you've written your word to us and uh, every page, even the pages that seem confusing or um, hard to navigate, Lord, have so much meaning for us and so much value to us. And so we pray for your help this evening, God, in working through these uh, somewhat difficult passages, Lord. I pray that you'd give uh, me wisdom and give us all wisdom to understand and ears to hear. I pray that especially we would see Jesus Christ in these places where people often miss him, Lord. I pray that we would see your son and that we would see him clearly and that we would love him more because of it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, um, this large portion of Scripture that we'll be covering this evening is basically God's blueprint for building the tabernacle. So it's God giving building instructions for how the tabernacle is to be built. And so this takes place between chapter 25 and the, and the beginning of chapter 31 of Exodus. And so this is over seven chapters of the Bible, or it's, it cut, spans seven chapters of the Bible. And so this is 236 verses, and 113 of which are pertinent to what I'm talking about tonight. Okay, so basically, um, since it's so many verses, we're not going to do it the traditional way where I read all 113 verses to you and then explain those, because we'll be going home at like 10 o'clock tonight. Instead, I asked some of you told me that you actually went and did this and read those verses. And even if you didn't, you should still be fine. But what's going to happen is we're going to move through the tabernacle and this blueprint and these different aspects, and I'm going to explain them and bring out the meaning. And what's going to be very helpful is the headings in your Bibles. Most Bibles have headings that are actually divided up perfectly along the lines of what I'm talking about. So I can kind of take you there and you can see the heading. It's probably the first time I'm ever going to say the headings are actually helpful. But in this case, they really are. So... So as Bible readers in 2023, modern people, we have a problem when it comes to this section of Exodus. We have a problem because uh, it's very easy for us to get bogged down. We, we run into a lot of trouble when we reach this part. And some of you might have noticed that uh, in your life or even while trying to read through this. The first issue we have is that we don't understand what the theological richness of it is. We don't understand the symbolism. We don't understand the meaning, per se. Sometimes we struggle to connect it to how it's relevant to us. And the second issue is we don't have an actual tabernacle or an actual temple that we can go to and see. Okay, so you think of an Old Testament person. They would have been reading these same passages, and they could go and look at, oh, that's the basin that it was describing in detail, or that's the altar that it was talking about, or that's the wall that they were referring to. But we don't have that, so we're kind of left to our imagination to some degree in understanding how that all works. And so in order to solve this problem and to help alleviate some of the difficulty with the theology and with the symbolism... Um, but also just to give us an overall understanding and kind of get our bearings when it comes to the tabernacle, I'm going to give a guided tour of it. I'm going to give us a guided tour of all these chapters, and I'm going to give us a guided tour of the tabernacle. 
And so it's not possible for me to cover every single theological detail or highlight every single uh, jot and every little thing in the blueprint. But what I do hope to do is kind of alleviate some of the stress, alleviate some of the uh, uncertainty about this section of the Bible, and just give us an understanding of how rich and meaningful the tabernacle is. So let's begin first, not yet quite with the tour, but let's begin first with understanding the building supplies that were needed to build the tabernacle. You can imagine if you're going on a tour, someone's going to tell you, well, what was it made out of? Where did they get the supplies to build the tabernacle? And so now, right before the tabernacle is going to be built, God does something important first. He he tells them where where the Israelites are to collect the supplies that they will need. So the building supplies are described in the beginning of chapter 25. Contributions for the sanctuary is what my Bible says. It says, and uh, there it describes to us where they were going to gather the things that they needed in order to build the tabernacle. And so let's read this section. We can read a little bit because it's so important. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So this is, this, this is the section where it describes the building, uh, the building supplies that were necessary, as well as kind of the purpose or the why that we understand. So first of all, regarding the building supplies, we see that God is actually asking them to supply things that he had first given them. Right? He, he had given them all of the gold, this long list in verse 3. All of the gold and the silver and the bronze and the blue and purple and scarlet yarns and things of that nature, all of these luxury goods that they had on hand were not things that they had went and found and made themselves. They were things that they had received mostly from the Egyptians. And so God is asking them to give from the heart some of these things that they had received from him first. So notice in verse 2, Uh, the second half of verse 2 there, it says, For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So some version will say like a willing heart. Every man who has a willing heart should bring some of these things together, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and all of these luxury goods from a willing heart. And so from this we see that God has always loved a cheerful giver. He's always loved a willing heart that's willing to give up things for him. And I think we need to understand this evening that these goods um, that they were giving up, they weren't theirs, right? Like that's the thing with, with tithing, even it relates to what Prashant was talking about this morning. When it comes to tithing, when it comes to contributing to what God is doing in the world, we're not giving him something that's ours, right? We're giving back to him what he's given us. We're giving back to him what he won for us. And there's almost no better example than these Israelites, right? They, they were slaves, they were poor, they had nothing. And yet God made them rich and then asks for some of what they had in order that he might build a house for himself. 
And so this was an offering from their own free will, from their heart, and this, is where, and this was so that God desired for them to uh, let him dwell in their midst, but it also expresses that they, they wanted, they're free, freely, they, they did this from their hearts. They wanted to have God dwelling in their midst. So this desire to have God dwelling among them links it to an amazing purpose statement. God gives an amazing statement here of why all of this is taking place. So all this whole sermon and everything that we're leading into, why is it important? Why is the tabernacle significant and why does it matter, right? It's an important thing to ask. If you're going to set out on a big building project or a big uh, journey of any kind, you're going to want to know why you're doing it first, right? And so here in verse 8 of chapter 25, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So this becomes an answer. This tabernacle really becomes an answer to earlier statements in Exodus. For instance, in 7 verse 16, God says, uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, Let my people go on behalf of God, that they may worship me, or that they may serve me in the wilderness. So the tabernacle is an answer to that. It's where they would worship him in the wilderness. And also, in 17 verse 7, they sinfully accused God and they said, is the Lord really among us or not? So this tabernacle is an answer to that question too. It's an answer, yes, God is going to dwell amongst you. God is going to build a house in the midst of his own people. And this is not an ordinary tent. It's also important to notice that. It's not an ordinary tent. I mentioned this a little bit this morning, but there's two words in Hebrew for tent. Okay, One of them is just a tent tent. And one of them is more explicitly like a dwelling place, a place where people would live in or someone would live in. So this word, tabernacle, means, yeah, it's a living, it's a dwelling place. So this is where God shows his people, I'm going to live in this tabernacle with you. I'm going to dwell in the midst of, of my people. And this whole concept of God dwelling with his people, God being in the midst of his people, That's really the key, I think. The key to unlocking this whole tabernacle, this key to understanding our whole uh, tour that we're about to go on, is to understand this aspect of God deciding to set it up where He wants to dwell with His people and the fact that His purpose is to dwell with His people. Because when we see that, oh, He wants to dwell with His chosen people, when we see that, all of a sudden there's so many connections that come to Jesus. To Jesus our Savior, And suddenly we start to see, oh, this altar or this, can you guys hear me? Good? Okay, just checking. So so this altar and all of this stuff, all of it is pointing to Jesus. All of it has significant, spiritual significance for our New Testament Christian life, right? And, And so all of a sudden we have this journey we can go through and Look at the lampstands, look at the tables, look at the incense, look at all these different things that we're going to see on our tour. And now we have the key to understanding it, and we can draw that back to Jesus. We can understand it. And so we think, well, okay, maybe that's a stretch, but no. In John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh, that's Jesus, became flesh, and He tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Exodus so much about the glory of God and about God dwelling with His people, Jesus there is tabernacling among us, showing the glory of God full of grace and truth. 
Colossians 2 verse 9 says, In Jesus the fullness of God dwells bodily. The fullness of God dwells bodily. So He becomes a man and dwells with His people. The fullness of God with His people. And so this, this tabernacle, this tent structure built in the desert is, is supposed to point us to Jesus. And it's very significant because Jesus, was set, Jesus became a man in history, right? Became a man. He took on flesh. And that's Him basically saying, look, those people in their lowly and uh, suffering state, I'm going to go and become like them. I'm going to go take on flesh and become a man and become like them. And that's what's happening here in the tabernacle. God is looking down on His Israelites, walking through this miserable time in the desert without struggling with their food and their water and all these other things. And He's going to go and He's going to go down and dwell with them. He's going to build a tent, a tabernacle, and He's going to go and He's going to dwell in the midst of His people. So we see this rich way that this whole building project from the building supplies that they gathered all the way to the purpose statement here that God wants to dwell with His people, all of it points us to our Savior Jesus. And so now, let's finally begin our tour. Okay, So we're beginning our tour. We're going to move from the inside of the building to the outside of the building. So we're going to start in this small little room in the middle. It's actually surprising. We, we often will... Uh, read these texts, and we don't understand the measurement system that they're using. So we might think, like, this is a huge palace, or it's some huge extravagant thing. It's really not, actually. If you're, it's very surprising. But when you look at the most holy place, okay, the most holy place is a room at the big, there's only two rooms in the tabernacle. One is the most holy place, and the other one is the holy place. Two rooms. The most holy place is a cube shaped room, it's 15 feet by 15 feet, by 15 feet. Very small, really, if you think about it. It's a small room. That's where we're beginning. So picture that. A small room, 15 feet by 15 feet, and we're situated in there on our tour. This um, room had only one piece of furniture. It only had one like fixture really in it, and that was the Ark of the Covenant, this major thing. Okay, And this, was cov- this is covered in chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. Again, this is how it's going to work. I'm not going to read the entire section every time. But I'm going to try to explain what that fixture is or what that thing is that we're seeing on our tour, what it looks like, what it kind of, how it fits into the tabernacle, and what it means for us. So this Ark of the Covenant, which you've heard about, but again, you probably mispictured what it actually looks like. It's only three and three-quarters feet long, so I'm not American, we don't use feet, but like it's not much longer than this, I guess. It's like two and a quarter feet wide and high. So it's like actually a pretty small thing, right? I don't, I don't, I'm rough, rough estimates. So it's, it's a pretty small thing, this ark. It's a rectangular chest, and it would contain the tablets of the law. And so if the tablets of the law could fit in that box, they're also not as big as you probably pictured them being. You pictured Moses carrying like these huge things down there. That's not really the case. They fit in this pretty small box. So the tablets of the law would fit inside of this ark. And on the top, it was covered with a golden platform. Okay, this golden platform was called the mercy seat. Okay, the mercy seat, also known as the atonement cover in some translations. So what's important to realize about the mercy seat is that it looks nothing like a seat at all. Okay, so you read that and you thought there's probably some kind of a chair looking thing up there. No, it's not a seat. It's a 
It's a golden platform that covers this rectangular box. And this is amazing craftsmanship here where they had to build it all in one piece. So it would be gold along the surface. And then there were these two angelic figures, cherubim, technically not angels, but how would you describe it? (laughs) Not angels, but angelic figures looking at one another on each side of this rectangular box. And they were out of the same gold that was, that was uh, making up the mercy seat. So quite an impressive uh, golden uh, piece of craftsmanship, really, if you think about it. So this is the feature that's in the most holy place. And it's the only piece of furniture, the only real feature in that room. So there's a lot we could think about, a lot we could talk about. We could go into all kinds of details about uh, every little thing, but we're not going to focus on that. We're going to do two things. We're going to see that the ark was, one, God's footstool, and on the other hand, it was a storage chest for the tablets of the law. Because these two important aspects of what the ark did and what it was. And along with storing the tables of the law, it also later would hold manna and also Aaron's budding rod. Okay, so there's some things that would later be added. But the the important thing to realize is that if it's God's footstool, okay, God's footstool is where this ark was. Now, again, we don't understand this because we don't have a lot of connection to what ancient royalty was like, but the idea of it being a footstool is a stool at the bottom of a throne where somebody's feet would rest on. And so God is here meeting with the Israelites in the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Room, and so His throne is in heaven. But his feet, so heaven is reaching earth, and his footstool, where his feet are connecting to earth, and heaven and earth are meeting, is in this room, in the Holy of Holies. So you have to understand, this is quite um, amazing, and also, this is why it's the most holy place. This is why it's such an unbelievable place to go into, and why a priest had to be very careful. And he could only ever go here, Leviticus 16, verse 2 says, you could only ever go here when God told you you're allowed to go here. And you're only allowed to go here at certain times when God tells you specifically that you're supposed to go here. You don't just barge into the footstool room of God. And so this was God's footstool. Heaven and earth would connect here. The other thing about it is that this ark was a chest and it stored the covenant and like I said, those other things later on. So another name for the tabernacle was that it was the tent of the testimony or the tent of testimony. Okay, so that means the tablets were what you call the testimony of God's law, covenant, and His his law, and the way that He connected to the people through covenant. So those were displayed in those tablets. And so it is very significant to see that God's testimony, or His covenant agreement, is located in His footstool, in the same place, right? Right? So in other words, what that's communicating to sinful, fallen people like the Israelites is the only way that you connect to God, the only way that you get to participate in heaven reaching down to earth is through a covenant relationship, is through through this testimony of the covenant of God's grace and the covenant of God's work with His people. So it's not only here that the law is kept, but it's also here that new laws would be given. It's interesting, right? Here is the place where God would speak from. This is where God interacted with His people. It's such a holy, holy room. Look at, look at chapter 25, verse 22 with me. There it says, There I will meet with you, 
and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment, in commandment for the people of Israel. So he's speaking his instructions and his commands in that room, in that place. Such a holy room. It's a room that was God's footstool at the ark, and it's a room where the testimony of God's covenant relationship was. Now, another important thing to realize about this room and about this ark is that at this spot, on the Day of Atonement, the blood, uh, the Day of Atonement was a day once a year where atonement would be made for the people of Israel. And so on that day, blood from a lamb would be brought in and it would be put upon the mercy seat. It would be sprinkled upon this uh, footstool of God. And this would represent the, the justice and the wrath of God being satisfied on behalf of the people. Okay, And this moment... This moment once a year when that would get sprinkled in that spot represented for the Israelites and for uh, us even as we read this, represents for us Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ coming to the footstool of God, perfectly fulfilling the commandments and the covenant of God, which is stored in that footstool, pouring out His blood and making that connection between heaven and earth, between sinful man and God possible through the gospel, right? It's an amazing picture that we get to see here, and we so often miss it here. But this is where the covenant requirements are filled by Jesus, and uh, His blood is spilled for sinners like us. So that is the most holy place. The most holy place in the temple is the most holy place in the world at that time. Okay? And so as we move now in our tour, we move out of the most holy place, and we move into the holy place. But before we can go into the holy place, we first have to travel through a veil. Okay, there's a little, there was a veil that was splitting the holy place from the most holy place. And so as we head out, we're going to read about that veil in chapter 26. Turn there. 26 verse 31 to 35. I'm just going to read 31 and the bottom of verse 33 to give us an understanding of what this veil was like. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And then there in verse 33 it says, at the bottom of 33 it says, And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. So I want us to note one thing very amazing about this uh, veil. This veil, as you might have, you probably read through this and you didn't think twice about this, likely. You didn't think twice about the fact that there was a cherubim skillfully worked into it. Look at verse 31. It says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So this veil that keeps you from the holy place, splits the holy place and the most holy place, has cherubim worked into it. Okay, so this is connecting us to Eden. This connects us to the Garden of Eden. And this, again, it's so easy to miss, but in Genesis 3, verse 23 to 24, it says, The Lord God sent Adam and Eve out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There was a flaming sword held in the hand of a cherubim 
on the east side of the Garden of Eden. And this is easy to miss again, but the, the doorway of the most holy place would have been facing east. Okay, so there's a cherubim on the east side of the doorway to the most holy place of God, pointing us back to Eden. And at the fall, Adam and Eve, what they had to come to terms with was the fact that their own works could not and would not ever be able to bring them into communion with God. Never. And so they had to realize if they tried to go in by their own works and grab of the tree of life again by their own goodness, they would get chopped up by this, this cherubim that was getting ready to defend that gate, right? And that same message then is sent to the Israelites here. On the side of the most holy place, every priest and every person that read about this would learn, because there was a cherubim there, that they could not just rush in there. They could not just go and do whatever they want, and they also could not earn their way to God. What they needed was an atonement. What they needed was a redeemer. They needed somebody to come and pay the price for their sin. So thankfully, we know from the Gospels that Jesus Christ, when He died, that that veil actually ripped open on its own. God ripped that veil open and made the connection between God and the most holy place possible because not because of good works from us, but because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ, because of His perfect sacrifice for us. And so by faith in Him, you can too travel through that veil. You can too join God in perfect communion. So then we pass through the veil and now we pass into the holy place. So we move from the most holy place into the holy place. We're walking in the easternly direction. Okay, so as we walk through the veil, we enter into another room. It's slightly larger and it's rectangular in shape. Um, and as we walk in there, you'll immediately notice that there are three pieces of furniture in this room. So it's the second room of our tour now. There's three pieces of furniture in this room. There's an altar, there's a table, and there's a lampstand. You walk through the veil, and the first thing you see right in front of your face is the altar of incense. The altar of incense is described in chapter 30. Flip to chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. So there you'd see the altar of incense. Again, quite small. Smaller than you might expect. A cubit is from my elbow to my fingertip. It would be, the top of it would be roughly a square about this size, and it would be two cubits high. Okay, so two, two of those high and a little square right in front of you as you walk through the veil. And so you end up there in front of this altar of incense. Now at this altar, uh, in verse 6 we found out, if we read there in verse 6, 30 verse 6, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. So it's there in front of the veil. And then we see in verses 7 to 9 that it was supposed to burn at all times. So God gave specific instructions that this incense was constantly supposed to be going up. This smoke was supposed to be continually going up. It says, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. This was a constant 
um, incense rising up before God. Like again, what Prashant talked about, that pleasing aroma going up to God. So, again in verse 10 we see, just like, just like the mercy seat was sprinkled with blood, this altar of incense was also supposed to be sprinkled with blood. It says, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And so what does this mean? What does this little altar mean that's right in front of us? What does it mean to have this smoke, this pleasant smelling smoke coming up? Well, we look elsewhere in Scripture and we see in Revelation 5 verse 8, it says, Incense is the prayers of the saints. You see in Psalm 141 verse 2, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May my prayer be set before you like incense. And so this incense altar is nearest to the door of the veil, and this is constantly rising up before God, and it represents prayer. It represents prayer, and, it, and this aspect of it being sprinkled with, with blood on the Day of Atonement, just like the mercy seat was, is a sign that prayer is pleasing to God because of the work of Christ is pleasing to God because Christ is the one who makes our prayer um, acceptable to God. And it's very amazing, but on the Day of Atonement, the priest would come and he would grab some of that smoke and some of that incense and he'd carry it into the, into the most holy place with him when he went in. So it would be sanctified and then he would carry it in there. In other words, that priest symbolizes Jesus Christ carrying our prayers before God. And the fact that that altar is located right in front of the most holy place is a symbol that prayer is how you get close to the heart of God. It's, it's how you get close to the footstool of God. It's how you get close to where heaven is meeting earth. It's, it's the richest form of communion that we have in our life is through prayer with God. It's all because of the Spirit and because of Jesus Christ that we can have prayer that goes before God and is pleasing to Him. So that's the altar of incense. Now over to the left, it doesn't say left and right in the Bible, but it says north. So I know it's on the left. On the north side, there's this table. Okay, it's called the table with the showbread. And again, it's tiny. It's two cubits long. Two cubits long, one cubit wide, one and a half cubits high. Just this high. The little tiny table off to the left side here. And it is found in chapter 25, verse 23 to 30. 25, verse 23 to 30. You see there it says the table for bread in mine. And so this table is overlaid with gold. It is set with dishes and plates and it's set with bread and it's constantly replenished with bread regularly. And so you read there in verse 30, right? It says it's replaced all the time. It says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So this golden table where every week, once a week, they would come in, they would replace this bread, and it would be given as a food offering to God. It would be, it would be given to present it to God as a food offering. It's 12 loaves that represent the 12 tribes of Israel placed on this table as a food offering. And this shows two things to us. It shows, first of all, that God provides for Israel. He provides the fruit of the earth. He provides the grain. He provides the bread. First of all, it's His provision. It's His kindness in giving them life and giving them energy and giving them everything that they need. But the second thing it shows is it shows His close, intimate desire to be near them 
and to dwell with them. Because what could be more intimate than a dinner or a meal at a table, right? And so it's showing them, it's showing this imagery of God wanting to dwell in intimacy and sharing in a meal with his people and dwelling that close with his people. And in that sense, it's not totally unlike the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper that we celebrate all the time. This table symbolizes something quite similar. For them, it was looking forward to Jesus Christ's work, pointing to how that was going to make them so that they could dwell with God in a richer way. For us, it points backwards. We do this in remembrance of me, right? In remembrance. For them, it was pointing ahead. But nonetheless, this table showed God's provision for them and God's close desire to dwell with them. Now on the right side, the south, yes, on the south side, there is the lampstand. So on the right side as you walk out, a lampstand. Now when you think of that, you're going to first turn to 25, it's right next after the table, 25 verse 31 to 40. So that's the lampstand. So when you think of this, think of that little, you guys know about Hanukkah, uh, Jewish people celebrate and they light the candles on that little, I think it's a menorah. So that's what you're going to picture here, is one of those, but larger, standing to the right of this room. And so this literally, when it was lit up with candles, would uh, light up the whole room, it would light up that room, and it would also literally look like a tree of light. And this would reflect again back to Eden, back to the tree of life, back to the Garden of Eden, and to to the desire of what true communion with God is supposed to be like. And so how do I know that this reflects back to that? Well, it's because there's so much Eden imagery. There's so much garden-like imagery attached to this lampstand. Look at verse 33. 26 verse 33. Or 25 verse 33. It says, Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand... So all six branches had these flowers and almond blossoms and, and beautiful uh, garden imagery on them. So this tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that God is the light of life. So this light lighting up off of this beautiful Eden tree, is that it shows us that God is the light of life. And secondly, it shows us that God's people should also be a light. So as God is the light of life, let's look at this. In the Bible, we see light is often used. There's the light of holiness. There's the light of knowledge. There's the light of joy. All of these are ways that light is talked about in Scriptures. Like this tabernacle lampstand lit up that room in the tabernacle, so we turn to Revelation 21-23, and there we see the city of heaven has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp, and its lamp, so its lampstand, is the Lamb. So in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth, the thing that's going to be lighting up heaven, the thing that's going to be lighting up our experience there is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ and God's glory lighting it up. So that's what this picture is. So God is the light of life, first of all. And then secondly, we understand that people, because they've experienced God's light, because His light has shone on them, they too need to be light. So Matthew 16, 5.16 says, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that's us working our good works 
shining the light of Christ into the world, and that's an image of this lampstand going out. You don't want to hide your lamp. You want to let your lamp shine out into the world. And so in Revelation, we also see that what is a church portrayed as in Revelation? The churches are portrayed as lampstands. Isn't that interesting? Our church is a lamp here in Castle Woods. Our church is a lampstand in our city. That's what the church is meant to be in the world. It's supposed to be a lampstand that shines the light of God in the world. So ultimately, this lampstand, beyond all of this, it also points to the fact that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's Jesus connected directly to that symbol that to us, we wouldn't necessarily make those connections. But when we start to see the meaning of the tabernacle, isn't it amazing? So now we've been to the most holy place. We've heard about the building supplies. We've even been to the holy place. We've seen all three of the pieces of furniture that are in there. And now finally we're going to leave the tabernacle. Okay, so no longer is it covered on the roof. Now we're finally leaving the eastern door. So the doors, you can just picture those doors facing east. You're walking out to the east. And outside of the tabernacle, there's a courtyard. This courtyard is about as long as an American football field is wide. That gives you a picture for it. Okay, so not the length of the field, the width of the field. That's how long this courtyard was that, they would, be, that would be around the tabernacle. It would be kind of fenced in with skins and things of that nature. So, we're not going to think of it as another room because there's no roof over it. But it's a courtyard. And there's two things that you're going to see here. Two things in this area. The first thing is a bronze wash basin. And the second thing is a bronze altar for burnt offerings. There's two things out in this courtyard. The first thing you'd run into is the bronze wash basin. So you leave those doors of the tabernacle. You've gone through those two rooms, through the veil, through the second door. And the first thing you run into is a bronze wash basin. So this is where the priests would wash themselves before they would enter into the tabernacle or before they would offer anything at the altars. Before they would do any real work, they'd always have to go to this basin first and wash themselves. Okay, And the reason is very important. Turn with me to 30, verse 17 to 21. 30, verse 17 to 21. There it talks about the bronze basin. There's a big bowl filled with water. So they'd have to wash themselves. And the reason is, in verse 20, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So the priests had to wash so that they would not die. It's so that they could enter into the presence of God. And this communicates the importance of purity and being cleansed and washed clean. So the last thing you could do before the, the last thing before entering the tabernacle or offering a sacrifice was always to wash yourself. So important. You could not even go into the presence of God before you had not washed yourself. And the crazy thing about this is they had to do this all the time, constantly, even throughout the day, multiple times, or constantly, as every day when you'd arrive there, they'd have to rewash themselves before they could go in, day after day, year after year, 
all the time washing themselves with water to be able to go and do the work. And even then, they couldn't always go into the full presence of God and enjoy the fullness of what was to offer them. But we now, because of Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfills the law and shed His blood for us, can perfectly approach the throne of grace. We can go there with confidence. Not with bravado. Not with rudeness. Not with anything like that. But we come with confidence. And we come boldly before the throne of God. Because He's washed us. We don't ever have to wash ourselves with any water other than the water of baptism. Okay? So if anyone... There's a lot of people out there that are shipping holy water to people, telling them if you wash with this, you'll get this, and if you do this, you'll get this. It's not true. It's nonsense, in fact. That's done. That's over with. Anyone who's selling you that is, is selling you a bill of goods. What you have here is a finished and done work because Jesus Christ washed us once for all. And once you're baptized into the church and you're clean, you're clean. You're always clean. You repent and you confess your sin, but you're clean and you can draw near to God because of His grace. And so the second thing you're going to walk into, you're walking out of those doors of the tabernacle. The first thing is the bronze basin. The second thing you're going to run into is going to be the bronze altar for burnt offerings. And that's in chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. So this is the largest piece of furniture, the largest fixture in the whole tabernacle associated with it at all. So it's five cubits, five times this square on the top. So five that way, five that way. Five by five on the top, and it's three cubits high. This is the largest, uh, largest platform that there is in the tabernacle. And there's lots of meaning in this, and there's so much you can connect it to throughout the Scripture about an altar and things like that. But here the most important thing that it communicates to us is the importance of death. The importance of blood sacrifice on our behalf. So you, have to, you have to realize this. The very first thing a Jewish person would see when they entered into the court of God was a large platform covered in dead, slaughtered, bleeding, burning animals. The first thing you see. You go through the entry... And the first thing you see right in front of you was a whole bunch of dead, slaughtered, bleeding animals and burning animals. And you'd literally be watching the death happen. The death would happen as part of your worship, as part of your act of coming to God. You would have to watch an innocent little sheep or an innocent little dove or something get killed and slain and burned in front of your eyes every single time. If that's not a wake-up call, if that's not a shocking thing that pointed them to the fact that they needed an innocent Savior, that they needed someone to atone for them and redeem them, then I don't know what is. It's so vivid. It's so important that you understand that. They walked in the doors, and there was death there. There was slaughter. There was bloodshed. There was all of this honestly kind of gruesome reality. And you have to actually let that sink in for a minute. It is kind of gruesome. I think that that was the point. God is trying to communicate that death is horrible. And the fact that something needs to die in your place is horrible. And the fact that this blood needs to be shed is horrible. But ultimately in Christ, we have Him bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. Him being our spotless Lamb that dies on our behalf. Him allowing the wrath of God to pass over us because He laid down His life for us. So we don't have to bring an animal anymore. We don't have to do any of that stuff. Christ has done it. 
So now we walk on our tour out of the last area of the tabernacle. We leave out of the entry of the tabernacle, which faces towards the east side, like I mentioned before. So this again reminds us of the whole idea of Eden, this east-facingness, this gate being open to the east. This again reminds us of the whole idea of we can't do it by our works and because there's a cherubim standing there keeping us. So every time that they would leave worship, it's symbolic too. Every single time they left worship, they left, to the west, they left out to the east side and they would always... So they're kind of mimicking getting cast out of the fall. They're, getting mimic, they're mimicking what happened to Adam and Eve getting thrown out of the garden. Every time they'd leave, they'd finish their worship and they'd have to leave. They'd have to go east. Okay? But the interesting thing is in the gospel, we see Jesus... And what does he do? He rides in from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And it mentions that specifically for a reason. Otherwise, it's not just, the Bible's not just giving us funny details for fun. It's telling us that he came in from the Mount of Olives, which we know is directly east of the temple. And so he's the one who cannot have to leave worship and head east. He's the one who can bring people in. He brings them from the east where they've been cast out. He brings them into communion with God. He brings them into worship with God. So we don't have to leave to the east anymore. We can draw near to God. The Bible promises us, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Right? He, he makes this a possibility because He's the only one who was not cast out because He's imperfect. He's the only one who wasn't cast out because of His sin. And Jesus comes in from the east and He cleanses the temple. He cleans it. He ultimately would tear the veil. He would make all of those altars, all of the tabernacle, all the temples, everything we've studied so far, everything we've seen on our tour, He would make all of that no longer necessary. None of it is necessary anymore. He goes in and He defeats and makes none of that necessary because of His work on the cross. And so he allows heaven and earth to come together perfectly, right? The whole idea of God's footstool there, he makes this a possibility and he draws us together in him. He restores everything lost at the fall and all of this architecture, all of this imagery we've seen on our tour is no longer needed. And so that finishes the actual physical tour of the tabernacle, okay? We've seen the building supplies where they've came from. We've seen the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and then we've seen the holy place, and then we've seen the outer courtyard and every piece of furniture that's situated inside of there. So we have to look at one more thing, though, as we conclude. Turn to 31 verses 1 to 11. There we're going to see the wisdom and the skill that is needed to complete this task. The wisdom and the skill that's required to build this tabernacle. So there we see that God appoints very specific craftsmen. He appoints them to be able to do this task to the exact and the specific specifications that He requires. Back in 25 verse 9, He said, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. But he's very specific. God says, you must worship me like this. You must be specific and detailed and to the point. You must do it exactly the way that I said you need to do it. And so here in 31, verse 1 to 11, it talks about how God finds the wisdom and the craftsmanship 
the men who are qualified to do the job, who are actually going to be able to build this. We see that God cares about His worship. We see that He cares about precision. We see that He cares about beauty. We can also see a couple of other beautiful things here. So remember I said at the beginning that the supplies that they used came from slavery? Well, here in verse 6, look at this. It says, Behold, I have appointed with him, 31 verse 6, in case, I, in case you missed it. Behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So I'm not trying to take away from the fact here that God gave them ability, that He gave them special ability at that moment when they needed to do that work to be able to complete that work. But you're not going to tell me that 400 years of being slaves in Egypt, they did not learn a whole bunch about how to, about how to do manual labor work, how to do fine craftsmanship for the Egyptians. Those people were building huge monuments and all kinds of things. These men have been trained up their whole life, even while they were still under the weight of slavery, even while they were still under the burden of slavery, they had been trained up their whole life by all of their experience and all of their, uh, their time under that weight to be ready for this moment where they could build the tabernacle of God. Isn't that amazing? He's actually using for their good and for His glory what they had learned in their suffering. These men did not all just show up and God just gave them a miracle, um, whatever, touch, and all of a sudden they were master craftsmen. I, I do think that they received some of that, of course, but I also think that God used their time and trial and tribulation to make them ready for this moment. And I think it's so beautiful. But the last thing about this, little, about this aspect of finding the right wise men and the right craftsmen to do the job is even more and more um, explanatory. It teaches us even more about what this tabernacle means and who God is and how we should understand it. So turn with me to verse uh, 3 of chapter 31. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. So there he's talking about a man named Bezalel. He's almost like the guide or the leader of the whole, the whole craftsman's uh, job that's going on here in building the tabernacle. And it's amazing here because the words that are used to describe Bezalel in building the tabernacle, where it says ability, intelligence, and knowledge. The Bible is so incredible the way that it explains itself sometimes. Excuse me. Those same Hebrew words... Ability, intelligence, and knowledge. Those same words are used in Proverbs 3, verse 19 to 20 to describe the way that God created the whole universe. The way that God made the whole world is made with the same way that Bezalel here makes the tabernacle. And that's just not a coincidence. That's telling us this tabernacle, this little tent in the desert, is actually supposed to point to the great God-built tent that is the universe. And so the fact that at the end of Exodus, this place is filled with the glory of God, this tabernacle is filled with the glory of God, points us to the fact that one day the whole entire universe 
is going to be filled with the glory of God. And there's a sense in which you can say it already is. But there's a sense in which you can say there's so much lacking in that. There's a day coming where every corner of the world will be lit up by the lamp of God. Where the glory of God will shine so richly and fully through every single part of God's creation. The new heavens and the new earth will be made perfect. God will dwell perfectly with us. Heaven will meet earth completely and perfectly with perfect peace forever. So Hebrews 8, 2 and 9, or Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 8 are very illustrative for us. It says, Jesus is the minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. In Hebrews 9, it says, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. It's of a new creation. And so if we're born again, if we come to Christ, if you can't see the richness and the beauty and the meaning and the purpose of Jesus Christ and all that He is, all that He's done for us in this story that to us seems so difficult to understand, if you can't see that, then you're missing this whole entire point. The whole point is come to Jesus Christ. Come to the cross. Come to the One who is innocent, who died for us. Come to the One who paid. Come to the One who made the way to God. Come to the One who connected heaven and earth. Come to Him. Come to Him. Believe the Gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ came, was born of a virgin, that He came and that He died a death that He didn't deserve, that He's now seated in heaven, that He's glorified, that he has, ev- he has won everything. And He's poured out His Spirit. He's poured out His Spirit, and that Spirit is going and filling the whole entire universe, the whole world with His glory. So Ephesians 2 says, 2.22, In Jesus we, that's a church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit into a tabernacle for God by the Spirit. So the way that God dwelt in the tabernacle, the way that He connected heaven to earth in the tabernacle, He's filling us as new creations, as those who've put our trust in Jesus Christ, as those who come to Him through repentance and faith. We come to Him and we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the most amazing thing is that is going to be victorious. It's going to fill up every corner of the world. Every single tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be there to glorify God and sing to Him when His glory fills the whole earth. And then we'll understand what the tabernacle is all about. Then we understand what it's all about. What is all this furniture about? What is all of this stuff that we have a hard time understanding about? And so I hope, brothers and sisters, that you leave this sermon Now, not having so much of a trouble, not so much of a difficulty with the tabernacle anymore. You can put these parts in their right places. You can understand what they mean. And so let's draw near to the Lord in prayer because of Jesus. Father, God, we thank You so much, Lord, that You, with Your creative power, Your wonderful 
plan throughout history, Lord. You've shown us all of these wonderful things that are really too good to even be true, Lord, but they're true of us, Lord, if we put our trust in Jesus. And God, I just thank you for that. I pray that you would use this truth, use these words to go and to fuel our week to be lights in the world, to be people who share the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we would have confidence and boldness to draw near to you in prayer, that we would not feel ashamed to draw near, that we would not feel uh, that we cannot come into your presence, because we can see that you've made it all possible, you've made a way for us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.